0: the crux of the matter episode 66 interpretation and preaching hello and welcome to the crux of the matter the show by pastors for pastors my name is pastor todd peppercorn and this is professor scott stigmeyer hey scott how are you today
1: Hey! Good, great. We've got a good connection.
0: Finally, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've had uh, we've had trouble connecting for any number of uh levels and reasons here this semester. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lord willing, we'll uh, we'll get in the groove of things sooner or later. But uh, but things are continuing to cook along in life. What have you been uh, teaching lately? Anything interesting? Well, we um, uh,
1: some of our listeners would be familiar with a uh, Lutheran youth organization called. Uh, higher things and higher things. They do these summer conferences for kids, uh, high school kids. But then last year they did something they called an unconference, which was just a Saturday blitz, not, not like a whole week long, like they normally do in the summer. But they did something in the winter at, uh, in Chicago where it was one day with like half a dozen speakers. Well, they did the same thing. Uh, Last weekend here in Irvine at Concordia University, and it started like at 3 p.m. on Saturday, and we had seven speakers. Each had a short period, 20 minutes each, and I. And then there was a dinner and Q&A and worship uh, before and after. And I was asked to speak for 20 minutes on bioethics. Anything, anything. You know, the the theme was we confess, and so you know the speakers were talking about we confess in the age of Trump, and someone talked about the two kingdoms and someone talked about, we confess about science and other things. So when I was asked to talk about bioethics, I thought, wow, you know, I can't really do justice to all of bioethics in 20 (laughs) minutes. Yeah, That's a
0: lot in 20 minutes.
1: There's so many topics. And so I thought what I would do is, um, kind of riff off a C.S. Lewis quote that I had, uh, C.S. Lewis said that, uh, the most dangerous ideas in a culture are not the ones that people are arguing about, but the ones that are assumed. So I thought, well, what assumptions do people have in our culture, in our society? What assumptions do people have that kind of lie at the root of some of the bioethical questions? And I came up with a couple. And one of the assumptions was that um, my body is my own property and I can do with it what I want. And, you know, it's, it's like an instrument for me to choose how it gets used. And, you know, you can't violate that I have personal autonomy and all that. I think that's one assumption. The other assumption is that, uh, that I think sort of, you know, pervades our culture is that my body is not the real me. The real me is something less tangible, like a mind or a spirit. or soul even. I even find that with my bioethics students uh, frequently, you know, when I start to ask them about questions about what is the destiny of the person after death, you know, they have this concept of the soul going to heaven often, but not much else. But not much else. Right. And creedly, you know, speaking of the creeds, we confess that the resurrection of the body. We're going to live embodied lives for eternity, not just like Casper, the ghost floating around. So I talked about dualism and transhumanism and Gnosticism um, and all those kinds of things that I think lie at the root of some of the things that we deal with in bioethics, like end of life questions, physician assisted suicide, surrogacy, um, you know, in vitro fertilization, things like that. So that was fun. Yeah, it was all good that time. in
0: 20 minutes,
1: huh? Uh, pretty much. Yeah, I crammed it in in 20 minutes. And and uh, but each, you know, it was I found it a very exhausting afternoon oh, <laughs> because everybody everybody had such meaty presentations and they you know, they felt like, you know, since you've only got 20 minutes, you got to pack in quite a bit. Um, you know, it might have been a little heady for some of the, ki- you know, the high school kids, but, you know, for anybody in college or adult young adults who were there. It was probably geared more towards them.
0: So, so was the purpose people that are physically sitting in the audience? I mean, I remember it was live stream too, but.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, (laughs) I think that, um, it, I think they wanted to have more people in the audience than there actually were, but. Yeah, of course they they live streamed it. I think that they said that they recorded it and they were going to throw them up on YouTube. So uh, you know, it's sort of a dual purpose. We wanted to try and have uh, you know a higher things presence here in Southern California, um, but also reach anybody that that wanted to tune in to the live stream.
0: Sure, cool. So, well, that's so, so, like yeah a, I, yeah, a fun but exhausting day. I have. It no was doubts. good.
1: Yeah, it was good. We I enjoyed it, and you know, this the other speakers were outstanding, and I think the people that came definitely got their money's worth in terms of hearing what some of the challenges are that the church, the Christian church, faces as we begin a new millennium.
0: Hmm. Cool. Well, yeah. I have um, two classes that I'm starting teaching that I have been starting teaching last last two three weeks. Uh, one is we're starting a uh, class on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, for those who are on the three-year series, we're in series A this year, so uh, I'm just doing all Matthew all the time right now, and uh, so I'm doing a Bible class on that. That's that's definitely fun and super helpful to put that together with all of the preaching at the same time. I'm thoroughly enjoying that. Uh, and then this week in my weekday Bible classes, I started a class on the book of Isaiah, which is equally fun. Um, But more challenging, no question. I mean, most pastors that I know, uh, their bread and butter is the Gospels and the Pauline epistles, probably that we certainly know the New Testament far, far better than the old. And when we spend time in the Old Testament, it tends to either be uh, stories Mm -hmm. primarily from Genesis and Exodus and, you know, maybe a little bit of Joshua and Judges and Kings and Samuel and Kings. but. When we spend times in the prophets, it tends to be very, um, very pick and choose. I'm Mm going to look at this prophecy or I'm going to look at maybe this story. I'm going to pull one chapter out. So to look at an entire book is a challenge. And then to pick a book like Isaiah, which has Mm -hmm. 66 chapters, is a whole other level of challenge. So I'm uh, I'm wrestling with figuring out how to. Just how to digest all of this and how to teach it in a way that is that is um, learnable, (laughs) I guess Mm -hmm. I would say, Um, and not go down too many rabbit trails, but kind of keep things moving, but get in depth enough so that you actually feel like you're doing something and learning something.
1: So are you using any particular commentaries to Um, help you prepare? I
0: I knew you were going to ask this, and if I had been smart, I would have looked it up. Um, I am using a a commentary that was recommended to me, Um, a couple of commentaries. The one that I'm uh, thinking of is by a man. I think his name is um, Mottier. I'm going to look it up while we're talking here. Okay. Um, Yeah, Alec. uh, I think it's Alec Mottier, Um, J. Alec Mottier. And he has a couple of uh, commentaries on uh, Isaiah. One of them is uh, the Tyndale Commentary. Uh, series, which is a uh, slightly uh, more popularly oriented commentary series, um, and then he has another one that's uh, that's called the Prophecy of Isaiah Introduction Commentary. And that one is uh, is quite in depth. I'm right now. I'm working through the Tyndall one, and I think I'm probably going to start working on the um, on the larger commentary as well. I've really liked it. Um, there's another one. That's pretty common by a man named Oswald. that is uh, that also comes highly recommended. And of course, Reed Lessing has commentaries on this, essentially the second half of Isaiah, starting in Isaiah 40 in the Concordia commentary series. Um, But he has not done one to thirty nine yet. I don't know if he's doing the first part of Isaiah or if somebody else is doing that. But Hmm. so there's resources out there, but it is such a big book and there's so much to do with it that uh it's it's a bit of a challenge to kind of figure out how to rewrap my brain around it cuz it's been i'm not sure i've ever taught a bible class on isaiah start to finish I don't
1: know. yeah i know i haven't um i i usually will pick like as you were saying you know the messianic prophecy you know the right. more, some of the more commonly known right. messianic prophecies that that i've done but like a verse by verse or chapter by chapter no way
0: yeah so that's, um, so that, and that's a good challenge for me. Mm-hmm. I've uh, sure. been enjoying that. And, uh, so far the Mottier, uh, commentary has been very, very helpful. So it's been fun.
1: Well, you know, that's what, that's one of the great joys about teaching the Bible is you really learn the Bible. That's right.
0: And you learn it really well. And, um, no matter how many times you've taught it, there's always mounds and mounds and mounds of stuff you don't know. Mm-hmm. And maybe even mounds and mounds of things you've never taught before. So, uh. So that's been that's been very very good. I feel like this year I have spent more time and energy, kind of specifically in in textual study than I have been able to for the last two three years, and that's been a lot of fun. I have that's really good. enjoyed that a lot.
1: It's been that's good. a good thing.
0: Yeah, it is. It really is. Well, our topic for today uh, is I called it interpretation and in preaching and, and really the reason I wanted to talk about this at least a little bit, uh, was because of the current class that I'm, that I'm taking at Aquinas and the classes on hermeneutics and hermeneutics and preaching interpretation and preaching. Um, it's raising lots of fascinating questions for me. And, uh, and I wanted to run an idea by you to see if I'm crazy and, uh, and to, invite our listeners to kind of come in on this conversation and see if there's uh, uh areas where we can we can learn more. Um when you talk about hermeneutics How do I put this Scott? My hermeneutics experience at seminary was not the best experience I ever had. Um, uh the the class that the class that I had in hermeneutics and I'm not going to name names, but it was Uh, The class was really a class on why historical criticism is wrong. Yeah. That's what the class was, is Mm -hmm. historical criticism is wrong. The traditional historical grammatical approach is right. And and that's pretty much it. And we learned a bunch of uh, rules for interpretation. Um, You know, scripture interprets scripture, use clearer passages to uh, explicate less clear passages um, uh, et cetera. You probably had the same instructor I did.
1: I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: you may not have now that I think of it, but yeah, um,
1: I, I, the, the instructor I had will remain nameless, but he was great actually. Yeah, yeah. And, but the semester after I had that my first year at sem, he left to go teach in Taiwan. Hmm. That well, may tell you who it is. You may yeah, know who that is. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So, so anyway, um, that was my experience with hermeneutics. It was okay. uh, it was a negative experience, I'll say. Uh, not not simply in the sense of uh, I don't think that the professor was the best teacher ever, but in that the entire purpose of the class was essentially to say what was wrong. Yeah. Um now you look at the rest of almost the entirety of Christianity. Um they're going to look at things like historical criticism and are going to either say so what or are going to assume it's true. And uh that puts us first off a slightly out of step with most of Christianity and I'm for one i am perfectly comfortable with being out of step with most of Christianity at least in this regard. But um that means that our sort of interpretive allies are going to tend to be fundamentalists really well not even necessarily fundamentalists. evangelicals all all right evangelicals i would say that with evangelicals they're not so much going to argue against her historical criticism as say that it's irrelevant but that's probably nitpicking um the problem with evangelicalism of course is that they have a very hard time finding jesus Really anywhere, but especially when you get so esoteric as to think of the Old Testament and never mind typology or any of these other things, it's just it's just not how they think. And so, for us, at least for me, I'll say I am much more interested in interpretation uh, that's going to uh, that's going to be very Christocentric. That is that's going to be very sacramental. That's going to be ecclesial. All of these sort of things. Um, the only people that do that kind of interpretation really are are Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And Roman Catholics almost universally accept historical criticism. So, so that's just weird.
1: <laughs> I'd be surprised if the Orthodox didn't as
0: well. Yeah, I I think you're probably right. Uh, I. I don't know enough about that to honestly answer mm. real um, answer intelligently on that. Maybe some of our listeners can help us with that. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, but so I'm taking this class on hermeneutics and uh, and they're talking about all of these uh, all of these awesome and wonderful people. And in historical criticism and how the you know, the great leader in historical criticism, one of the books we read said that the um, the person that really invented historical criticism was care to guess. Martin Luther. <laughs> no, yeah,
1: okay,
0: really, yeah, because Martin Luther was the one that defended the individual's right to interpret the Bible as they saw fit. I mean, you okay. knew that, right? Sure, yeah, that is. We do seem to get that a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but the next big um, name in uh, in terms of looking at sources or kind of inspiration behind interpretation, the next big name that I that I have found so far. Schleiermacher.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, sure. when I think of Schleiermacher, there is really not one positive thought <laughs> in my head about Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, you know, Schleiermacher is the, you know, the 19th century, early 19th century German that essentially, and and you can help me with this if you remember this better than I do, but essentially argued that the the locus of Christianity is is not in Christ. And, and and kind of the objective realities of God and God's work of revelation in the world but is in Christian experience mm-hmm. and in how and in how the Christian the individual experiences religion um and so you have a very anthropocentric uh, approach to the Christian faith, which Leiermacher and that it's that anthropocentric, uh, approach, which has really defined, um, much of modern criticism of the Bible. So, so that's, uh, that's fascinating to me that I'm reading all these books that see Schleiermacher as the great hero. And I'm, uh, I'm going to be honest, Scott, I'm really having a hard time getting excited about him. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't blame you. I mean, there's it, it
1: from a historian's perspective. It's interesting. Um you know, but uh i i i would I would be ready to you know move on after we kind of covered that for a couple weeks, yep, yeah, and do and, something else
0: right well, and so that that's fascinating to me, just in just how different our perspective on on history, on kind of where all this stuff fits falls in so that's so that's curiosity number one for me, curiosity number two. Is that is that most of our class, at least at this point, um, appears that we're going to be spending most of our energies on narrative criticism? Okay, and um, and narrative criticism is a branch of criticism that I think you can almost say is a, is very different from what we would call higher criticism. Higher criticism is really uh, author oriented. So, you know, who was the author? When was it written? What was the intention of the author behind it? So that's where you get your first, second, third Isaiahs and, you know, the, the Q source and, you know, the two document hypothesis and all that kind of stuff. That's all historical. That's all higher criticism. Um, narrative criticism is based on the uh, on who were the readers or the hearers of the text And what were the presuppositions that they brought when they received the text? How did they hear it? How was the how are they going to uh, to hear these texts and what function were these texts going to play uh, for them? So, I mean, and that's a super simplistic view of narrative criticism, but I think that's Mm -hmm. I think that's essentially what's going on. Now, what's fascinating to me. And, and maybe I'm going to get in trouble for this. I don't think so. But what's fascinating to me is historical criticism uh, in our, you know, kind of branch of confessional Lutheranism, historical criticism is almost universally condemned. Yeah, sure. Um, All kinds of it. Right. All, any, all manifestations. Any kind of it, mm-hmm, you know, uh-huh. uh, historical criticism, um, but also. Redaction criticism, form criticism, you know, any you know, the textual based criticism as well as the author based criticism. It's all bad. And, and has led to the Missouri Synod being called fundamentalist. You bet. That's the that's the thing. And that's been one of my critiques of the text that we're looked at that we're, we've read so far is that it's either fundamentalists, which are essentially dismissed almost out of hand. Mm-hmm. Sure. Or it's, you know, what what is. Everybody else. So, so, but narrative criticism is pretty well received in confessional Lutheran circles. I mean, that's, I am, um, uh, you know, just for example, uh, I, and, and this is what got me thinking on this, is uh, in our Winkle yesterday, uh, uh, we're, we're studying Matthew in our Winkle too. So it really is all Matthew all the time. Mm-hmm. And the, the the gentleman that was doing the presentation of Matthew um, passed around a book by Dr. Jeff Gibbs, who's a, a wonderful New Testament professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And this was, a, I think I could be wrong. I think it was Gibbs's doctoral dissertation. Essentially, it was called Jerusalem and the Parousia. And where he essentially worked through Matthew 23, 24 and 25. Um, and on the back of the book. There is this glowing review of the book by one of the authors of the books that I'm reading for this class.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: <laughs> Where the author's name is Powell, um, says says that this is the first and, and a wonderful example of how narrative criticism can be used in the Gospels. There you <laughs> go. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Published yeah. by Concordia Academic Press. And so, so that just got me thinking about this and then, and then Gibbs's commentaries, but then over to um our mentor and mentor and friend, Dr. Arthur Just commentaries. This is all narrative criticism. It's all, how do the readers, you know, who were the hearers of these texts? Who are the readers of these texts? What were they intended for? How were they used? And so the whole idea of gospels as catechesis for teaching the faith. That's narrative criticism. I mean, that would be the argument. And and so, mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: I don't know. I mean, it it, it feels to I me. Mean, I, there are definitely people in our circles that don't like it.
0: Absolutely. No question about it.
1: You yeah, know, there are people that, that would say this isn't true to Missouri's history. And it, it recognize it exactly for what you're saying, is that this is a form of higher criticism and therefore we can't do it.
0: And... I think that I think that you're right. I think that the voices that would say that are um are more and more dim. Mm-hmm, that's true in, too. In our circles. And and yeah, I don't mean too. that as an insult. I simply I no. mean that there are less and less people that are making that case mm-hmm. or that argument. I think they exist, but uh, there aren't many.
1: Yeah, not in in by our circles,
0: you know, specifically meaning LCMS. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Yeah. That's what I'm talking yeah. about there. Yeah. Yeah. So so how is it then that um that narrative criticism has kind of kind of become the accepted or an acceptable form? And, and I am truly asking this question. I do not have an answer to it. Mm. Um what I what I do recognize is that reading the New Testament as a preacher as i'm preparing sermons what i am what i'm thinking about is okay how do i preach this text to this group of people on this sunday morning in this place at this time and how are they going to hear it so i do a a kind of narrative criticism of my own sermons and writing Every single week, by ex, ex, you know analyzing my congregation, analyzing the text, and asking how is this text going to apply to these people. So you, in that you way, mean I your get, job is not just simply to
1: inform them and and fill their mind with factoids about right, the Bible, right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> um, preaching does not it, preaching does not equate in a kind of a nifty one on one way with information. No. Downloading information, right? right, Certainly there's information, there's knowledge. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and certainly we, there is an aspect of preaching that is, that is teaching, that is, that is information in the proper sense. But, but it's also performative. Preaching is, preaching creates faith and faith and hope. And, and that's a different thing. And this is, you know, this is also rhetoric, by the way. So, Mm -hmm. So how is it that when I read a text and I'm asking these sort of questions, which I think every every preacher does, and if they don't, they should. Um, how is this going to be heard? How does this apply to my congregation? How do I decide what I'm going to preach on any given week? You know, I fill up my head with commentary, sermons, translation, ex exegetical, you know, work. All of this stuff, and then something's going to come out on the other side. How do I determine what those things are, and what am I trying to accomplish in the process
1: It's a more pastoral way of reading the Bible, and i don't know if that's different from missouri's history i I'm just not that familiar with um, some of the commentaries from people like George Deckhart and uh, you know some of the early or you know some of the what we would call Bronze Age Missouriana kind of interpreters. Yep, I agree. But 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 my but my impression is that they would be more in the let's inform them about the grammar. Let's inform them about the me. I don't know. I don't know if that's being fair to them.
0: I don't. I, I, and, I just don't, I don't know. know. I mean, I've read plenty of of Stekart sermons and 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 Peeper sermons and Walter. Mm-hmm. Ser- you know, read plenty of sermons in our own history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. I don't generally feel like they are just filled up with uh what I guess you could call biblical minutiae
1: mm-hmm.
0: um that there is a, a you know a clear intention behind it. The mm-hmm. intention is usually gonna fall more along the lines of law and gospel mm-hmm. than sure. it, than it is um any particular you know type of knowledge and stuff, but there's nevertheless a sense in preaching that preaching does involve the will that there is a change of the will. There is a change of heart and mind that is involved and, and how or what that's going to do. Um, I am very interested. I don't have any answers for this and this is probably an incomplete thought at this point. Uh, it will be interested. Um, it will be interesting to see if, uh, uh, what this looks like about three months from now after I've wrestled with this for a few more months, but that's the stuff I'm, I'm musing on right now and just trying to figure out how to make sense of it. Um, as a Lutheran pastor today.
1: Well, what other kinds of books do you have to read? So this
0: class is on hermeneutics. Yep. This is a class of hermeneutics for preaching. Right. Right. So we're reading a, what I would call a, an introductory uh, hermeneutics book called the revelatory text. We've got a, uh, 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 one called uh, a social science commentary on the Gospels, um, and we've got a uh, a, a narrative criticism uh, commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we have a similar one that's on the Gospel of John. Um, it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting collection. Um, probably the most interesting one uh, is a book called The Misunderstood Jew. -hmm. Have I told you about this one? No. Well, you we I think
1: you put something. something. I think you put something on Facebook
0: or or something. Yeah, because the misunderstood view uh, Jew was written by a uh, a woman. Her name's Levine. Amy, I think Amy Levine. She's a New Testament professor at Vanderbilt, and is a Jew. She's not a Christian. Mm -hmm. And essentially, her argument is: in order to understand the new testament jesus you have to understand first century judaism and we don't
1: all right oh
0: okay and in order to understand judaism today the best the best historical example of a jew is jesus <laughs> So, uh, you know, there's a little tautology there, obviously, there's a
1: little bit of a circle.
0: Yeah. But um, but her point is, is that Jesus is far more Jewish than we give him credit for. And um, and that many of the many of the approaches that we take to the New Testament may not have been how the original hearers took it. So it's it's frankly another kind of narrative criticism, really. <laughs> And her argument is, is that we've gotten the narrative wrong. Uh, so, for example, right now in series A, we're going through the Beatitudes. Her argument, or we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Her argument with the Sermon on the Mount is that this isn't Jesus coming up with some radical, completely unheard of and unthought of idea and notion about the law, but that he simply is presenting his, his case for how to interpret the Torah and that his case would have been his view would have been similar to many other Jewish rabbis of the day and dissimilar to others. So mm-hmm. not that he is far out, but that it kind of fits in with uh, with the rest of what you saw in first century Judaism.
1: Well, well, I've told my classes that, you know, the teachings of Jesus, while, v- while extremely beautiful and uh, you know, rich and and valuable, um, you know, are not necessarily all that unique. Right. That if it, you know, what makes Jesus unique, of course, is his death and resurrection. And, you know, I've often said that if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, or at least if his apostles hadn't claimed he rose from the dead, we probably never would have heard of him because he would have been, I, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, if that's quite, maybe that's a bit extreme, but I think that, uh, you know, from what I've read, his teachings are often, uh, similar to many other rabbis of his time. And, you know, he sometimes maybe puts a little hook in it here or there. I like the way you put it that sometimes he would have been similar to some and dissimilar to others, but, uh, not completely innovative.
0: Right. Right. Or outside of the norm. I think Mm -hmm. that would be, uh, uh, an interesting way to put it. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's been a fascinating, a fascinating book to look at. I think she engages in a fair amount of hyperbole in order to make her point, but that's okay. Um, it's, uh, it has forced me to kind of ask some questions of the text and just of looking at it and recognizing what are my presuppositions in going to the text, which is a very, you know, lovely postmodern sort of question to ask. Um, I know how you like that stuff, so it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah, but but recognizing what are our presuppositions as mm-hmm, we go to sure. effects is a pretty important thing.
1: Oh, um, I, I we we all have biases, but what, yep. what makes a difference is whether you can recognize them or not,
0: right? And what I, I go for that, yeah, of bias because something is a bias does not equal wrong. No, <laughs> it it simply equals recognizing why you're reading something the way that you do. Mm -hmm. And frankly, we do the same thing with, um, we don't have to be talking about Bible interpretation or preaching. We can be talking about people. You know, why Mm -hmm. do I interact with this person in this way? Well, chances are there is some bias in my own kind of personal makeup that, that affects how I interact with this person. You know, whatever, whoever it is and whatever it is, that's not, I don't even think that's all that profound. That's kind of duh. Um, Why would it be any different when we're, when we're looking at that with the scriptures as we come to the scriptures? So, yeah, so it's been, uh, I I feel like my brain is getting a workout right now and that I'm being forced to uh, continually examine what does it mean to be a Lutheran Christian in the 21st century, particularly a Lutheran pastor. And how is it that all of these things um, kind of float around us and we don't even ask whether they're good, bad or ugly. We may not even be aware that they exist very often. I think that's true. Yeah. So that's what I've been uh, cooking on. If any of our Hmm. uh, listeners have any uh, insights or think that we're dead wrong on narrative criticism or any other fun stuff, by all means write us. Or uh, leave us a voice message or however you want to do it. You can find this episode at thecruxofthematter.net slash podcast slash 66. And I would invite you to uh, send us a note there or leave a comment. That would be great. We would love to hear from you. <clears throat> so are you, uh, are you having any joy of late, my friend? Anything of interest Uh, bringing you joy right now?
1: Yeah. You know, I usually pick a book or a magazine or something like that, but um, I'm going actually with a podcast that I've been listening to the last few days or the last few weeks. Um, It's called quick to listen and it's uh, produced by the editors of Christianity today. Nice. And it's it is actually very good because or for someone like myself, I really enjoy it because what they do is take a piece of culture or contemporary events, current events, and they just drill down with it a little bit, you know, sort of a Christian worldview sort of thing for 30 minutes. And, and I think it's a perfect length. Um, it's, it works well for my commute, <laughs> but they uh, they're very interesting. So the, today, as I was listening to it, they were talking about uh, the Super Bowl and the role of sport in American culture and and American Christianity. Um, you know, they kind of verged on some interesting, interesting things. Uh another topic they did recently was um uh was the uh persecution of Christians around the world because Human Rights Watch had just come out with its list of the 50 most dangerous places to be a Christian or something like that. And and another one was on um uh, going back a few weeks, another one was on what evangelicals can believe or do or think about the Virgin Mary. This was close to Christmas. So they were talking about <laughs> My that. Favorite topic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was really good. It was really fascinating. You know, they're sitting there talking about, uh, you know, the assumption of Mary and, and uh, whether or not, you know, we can believe that as Protestants or as non-Catholics or whatever right. you want to say. But, uh, but I've, I really enjoyed it. You know, I, I try to have a wide range of different different podcasts that I listen to and, you know, sometimes they're secular and they just kind of appeal to my guilty pleasures or my interests. But this is, this is one. it's not a new podcast, but it's new to me and I recommend it.
0: Cool. That's a good one. Well, mine is, uh, mine is another guilty pleasure and that is, uh, when I am, when I am home, I, uh, I don't read as much theology. Uh, I tend to read more fiction Uh, And I definitely lean toward the uh, science fiction or fantasy end of things. And about a month ago, I'm going to say, I started uh, reading or in this case listening to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Now, of course, we know Stephen King is probably one of the most prolific authors of the last 50 years, I would think. You go to a bookstore and you're going to have like a bazillion books by him. I think he's the most prolific author in the English language. Period. Yeah, yeah, that would not surprise me. That's a guy that Uh can write. Uh Um, Writes a novel about a year. Right. At least I would say, Mm -hmm. if not more. Um, The Stand Care. A lot of the a lot of kind of the classic horror movies are many of them. And this is much more your bailiwick than mine. Many of them carry. Those are Stephen King novels. Tommy Mm -hmm. Knockers. um, You know, there's a lot of them. I'm not a huge horror fan like you are, but uh, this series is – it's hard to describe. Uh, It's seven books. I'm listening to them. I'm about halfway through. And it's a combination of a dystopian future, uh, a little bit of science fiction, a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of Western, um, and maybe a dash of Quentin Tarantino thrown in. So, And it is incredibly difficult to describe. But um, but I am thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. The language is absolutely atrocious. I mean, the writing is beautiful. But in terms of a uh, coarse language, there is definitely coarse language. Lots of coarse language. Yep. Okay. But um, but it is one of the most interesting and unique stories that I have read in a very long time. So I'm uh, about halfway through it and I am I'm really getting a kick out of it. We'll see what I think about it at the end. But so far, so good.
1: So you are, did you say you're about halfway through the series?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just finished book three. I'm starting book four sometime in the next day or two, something like that. And I've been listening to them instead of reading them. So when I'm driving around making calls or driving my kids to places or whatever, uh, Mm -hmm. that's what I've been listening to. So I haven't been listening to as many podcasts over the last month. Gotcha. Okay, too. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing. And uh, And that's been giving me a lot of joy. It's been a while since I've had a book that I really was just... Longing to come up with an excuse to drive somewhere so I could listen some more so that's been good been very good very well, anything good. else for our dear listeners my friend
1: no that that's uh that's everything
0: all right <laughs> that is absolutely everything it is uh good having you all with us on our uh, on our trek today and we will see you next time
1: goodbye